So when was the last time you had discovered that you had deceived yourself? Right, that's not a comfortable question to answer, is it? Right, we're more likely to, to point out the ways that others try to deceive us. And so we blame advertisers for selling us products that we ultimately find out not to be true. They don't work like, they, like we were told. Right, we hold politicians accountable for turning out to be less than they promised. Right, we lay the blame on the, on the coach of our favorite team for once again giving us the false impression that our, that our team stood a chance this season. You see, in our day with the, the increase and, and the sophistication of, of scams, we're, we're wired to be on guard against the, the latest and misleading scheme. Right, we're distrustful. Right, we question everything. We're, we're kind of defensive and on the lookout. And all that is probably to some extent necessary and good. But are we ever worried about falling prey to our own self-deception? Does it cross our minds that perhaps we're giving ourselves a false impression? Right? Is it all possible that you've tricked yourself into believing something about yourself that isn't true? We're studying the book of, of James. Right? And we see that James's concern for the recipients of his letter wasn't their being deceived from the outside. His worry was that their deception would come from within. So as he put it in the, in the verses that we covered last week, he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Friends, the greatest danger we have isn't being deceived by some internet scam or some crafty commercial. The greatest threat we face is deceiving ourselves about the reality of our relationship with God. And so if you're, if you're visiting here for the first time, maybe wondering what it is that we believe, I think it would be this. That you're standing before the living God, the king of the universe, is the most pressing matter in your life. Right? To be deceived about that renders everything else that you might have right irrelevant. And as we learn from James, even those who regularly hear the word of God are not exempt from the peril of self-deception. In fact, you might say that they're in greater danger. And so the most important question is, how do we know if our faith is real and not, as James says, worthless? How can we be assured that we haven't fallen prey to our own self-deception? Well, that's what our passage this morning helps to answer. And as we'll discover, a genuine faith is one that doesn't play favorites, but extends mercy and compassion to all in obedience to God. So our passage that we're looking at this morning, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. So right up front, we see that James's position is, is, is quite clear. Verse one is saying that showing partiality or favoritism is incompatible with holding faith in Jesus Christ. And what James has in mind is, is, is much broader than what he references in verses two to four. Because the word James uses for partiality comes from the the Greek word literally meaning receiving the face. So James's use of that word rules out all judgments based on external appearances. James forbids a kind of discrimination that is made for, for carnal reasons. So friends, think about what often tips the scales in favor of one person over another. In our world, Often within our own hearts, we give weight. You might say we give glory, importance to things that are, that are simply outward and fleeting. Clothing, one's appearance, one's age. And notice James, he doesn't condemn the man for wearing a gold ring or fine clothing. He's not the problem. James's solution is, is not to outlaw gold rings and fine clothing in the assembly. Right? The man in the shabby clothing certainly wasn't the problem. You notice this didn't spark James to say, you know, now might be the time that we start thinking about a dress code. Right? The issue was that there existed two forms of treatment. There was one for those who had worldly status and one for those who lacked it. The man who entered the assembly with 
the gold ring, the fine clothing. He carried with him what the world esteemed, what the world thought valuable. But it was the congregation, those who professed faith in Christ, who chose to honor and to recognize the world's values within the church. You've seen those signs near a restaurant's checkout, letting you know which credit cards they accept. Right? By honoring the rich man to the neglect of the poor man, this congregation was letting it be known which glory they accepted. Right? They may have professed to believe in the, the Lord of glory, but their actions proved that they loved the glory of the world more than the glory of that came from God. So friends, are the things that are glorious and weighty out there in our world, are they glorious and weighty in here among us? Does someone's vocation warrant him more attention? Does someone's family lineage or last name exalt them above someone with, with no notoriety? And if the world, as James is saying, is generally inclined towards those with wealth and power and charisma, where does James expect those who claim faith in Christ to be drawn? What are we to be attracted to? The answer is found in verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. And so the point here isn't that God excludes the rich. It's not that the church isn't to minister to men like the one who, who came in wearing the gold ring and the fine clothing. James never commends incivility towards the rich. The solution was never to tell the rich man to have a seat on the floor. And yet, it is the case that throughout the Bible, we see that God continually remembers the poor and that he stresses that they be cared for by his people, the people who claim to believe in him. And so, for example, we read in Deuteronomy about what the people were to do with the tithe of their produce. So Moses he wrote for them, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled. And following that same thing, look at what James wrote right before our passage. He's describing the religion that is pure and undefiled before God. He said it is to visit, to relieve, to alleviate orphans and widows, the poor in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And do you see how James's congregation failed on both points? First, they didn't work to alleviate this poor man's affliction. 
In fact, they added to it by relegating him to a spot on the floor. And they didn't keep themselves unstained from the world because they made distinctions within their church based on the world's value system. They followed the pattern of an unbelieving world. Which is why James says at the end of verse 4, that they are behaving like judges with evil thoughts. And that's strong language, isn't it? I think generally people would concede that partiality is impolite. We might say that it's inevitable, so it's, it's best not to go overboard and, and be too conspicuous about it. But the reason that partiality is evil is because it stands against the character of God. Partiality is not merely impolite or rude. It is ungodly. And sure, partiality is found everywhere in our world. But there is no trace or hint of partiality to be found in God. He is the God who always renders a flawless judgment. And what that means is that if you've, you've not sought salvation in Christ alone, you will, you will stand before the impartial judge and receive a perfect eternal judgment for your sins. There will be no rebuttal. You know, there were always teachers who I felt could be swayed by my, I'll say, self-perceived, delightful, winsome personality. And then there were others. There were others who delighted in grading impartially. And so I knew how to adjust. And perhaps that was what was happening among this assembly. It's possible that they were trying to curry favor with the rich. But friends, our judge doesn't play favorites. He's not swayed like we can be. He can't be bought. He owns everything. And so Paul tells us, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. God makes no mistakes. There's no piece of evidence hidden from him. And his judgment will be made with perfect equity. And it is only by his grace that the impartial judge has offered us peace. He's offered us acquittal through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who received that perfect judgment on behalf of all those who would repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ. Partiality is not some minor thing. It should never be something that we learn to tolerate because when we, I'm speaking directly to those who hold faith in Christ, when we show partiality, we are telling a lie about God and we very well end up dishonoring those 
who God honors. Those who are rich in faith. Those who stand to inherit an eternal kingdom. People who love the Lord. So that's James's first attack against partiality. It is wrong because it is unlike God. And beginning in verse 8, James gives us yet another reason why this partiality is incompatible with holding faith in Christ. It violates God's law. So look again at, at verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But partiality, as James makes clear in verse 9, it breaks that law. The man in shabby clothing was a neighbor just as deserving of love and honor as the man in fine clothing. Both were neighbors who were owed the congregation's faithfulness to the law. There is only one law. And we are obligated to extend our obedience to it without discrimination. But we know that the human heart has an amazing capacity to restrict who qualifies as a neighbor. It's the person who looks like us or who might be able to, to benefit us in some way. We might tell ourselves it's no big deal to covet the possessions of someone we don't know. They won't find out. Right? We might tell ourselves, we might excuse bearing a false witness if it stands to advance our more noble cause. We even reason murder is justifiable when someone's cognitive abilities are diminished or if they can't speak for themselves. Partiality is just another way in which to define our neighbor in a narrow sense. It says that because this person reflects the outward appearance I like, well, I'll extend love to them. But do you see what that is? All that is, is standing in judgment over this law. And more accurately, it is rebellion against the king. Right? Notice James refers to the law to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law. Meaning it is the law that comes from the king himself. Right? And it is the operating rule of his kingdom. Right? Meaning we are, in, we are not in a position to adjust and tweak the law of the sovereign ruler of the universe so that it, it fits our preferences. Or we water it down so we, we simply end up loving those that we are naturally inclined to love. Our, our behavior, it falls under the moral sovereignty of God. And so he has every right to tell us how to live. He has every right to tell us what to do. He has every right to tell us what not to do. And our feelings or anything else from that do not trump God's authority, his wisdom. But here's what we want to say. I mean, is partiality really a big deal? Aren't there bigger fish to fry? I mean, 
It isn't murder or adultery, right? And we reason that way, don't we? I tried to make that case many times to my parents, and they were never impressed that I hadn't committed murder. It seems a bit over the top for James to say, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. What's James's reasoning here? He seems to be saying that obedience to the law, obedience to God, is like being pregnant. It falls into that all or nothing category. And the reason is because the law of God is not some random bits of advice cobbled together to make our lives tolerable and manageable. The law of God is an expression of God's character. And so it's a unified whole. It doesn't come to us like a menu where we get to pick out what we like. We don't get to say, you know, today I'm feeling like keeping the commandment against murder. But I'm going to leave my options open on the others. You see, the essence of our sin isn't merely breaking this commandment or that commandment. Breaking the law is the outworking of our self-exaltation. The essence of our sin is that we just don't want to give up the throne. It's that we've all become our own judges, our own lawgivers. And so we find out what we like, and we proceed, regardless of what the Lord and lawgiver of the universe has revealed. We find ways to suppress the truth, to go on doing the sins we enjoy. So you see, before we can ever speak, before we can ever act according to the law, before we can ever ever begin to truly keep God's law, something must change. Our hearts must change towards this lawgiver. We must become new creatures who step down from our small and petty thrones. Look back at what James said at the start of his letter. He said, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God, by the power of his word, is able to make a new kind of people. It's out of his sheer, unmatchable, unchanging goodness. So no matter what you've done, how poorly you've obeyed, which commandments you've broken, how long you've ignored this God, he can bring forth a new life in you. He can do it simply by the power of his word where he calls you to believe and trust in him. And for James, those who are a kind of first fruits of God's creatures, there's this new relationship to God's law. So look at verse 12. The law is now the law of liberty. And James's point is not that we'll, it's not that we'll escape God's judgment through our, our perfect obedience. 
It's not that we'll be liberated from God's judgment by keeping the commandments without blemish. That's what Christ has done for us. He perfectly obeyed. But in view of God's judgment, a judgment we will, we will all face, there is great freedom in knowing what God commands and doing it. From last week, we heard James say, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so for James, his message is that there can never be a blessing found in showing partiality. It's never going to bring freedom. It only enslaves. It's only going to convict and bring condemnation. If we're looking for liberty, we have to find it within the law of love. It's not that we obey God so that he'll write us some ticket where we can go off and be free. We obey and fulfill his law of love to know and to experience what it is to have true liberty. And so, friends, there is no freedom in living with broken, unreconciled relationships with a brother or sister in Christ. Right? We are blessed when, Christ, when we do as Christ has called us to do to pursue reconciliation. There is no freedom in sexual immorality. We are blessed when we attack the lust that lies in our hearts. There is no freedom to be found in our gossip. If you are putting off doing what you know Christ commands, you are not free regardless of how much control you feel you have over the situation. Later in his letter, James puts, he puts the matter rather bluntly. He says, for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. The right thing was obviously not to tell the poor man to take a seat in the back. The right thing was clearly to extend mercy, to move toward him in a way that sought to relieve him of his affliction, not shame him because of what he lacked according to the world's standards. Friends, according to James, we are deceived if we believe we will be spared God's judgment if our lives are empty of mercy. That's what James is saying in verse 13. If our lives are characterized by a spirit of partiality, characterized by favoring one group over another, withholding love to someone based on outward appearances, we can be assured there will be no mercy for us. That is the evidence that we haven't received the mercy of God in Christ. So remember at the start of our passage, James refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory. He is the exalted one who reigns in heaven over all things. 
He is the one who, who rose victoriously over sin and death. He is the one who will come to judge again the living and the dead. There is no one with more power and authority than this Lord of glory. But is this Lord of glory who Paul tells us that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Friends, think how Christ was dressed in the last day of his life. He was stripped bare. And then he was clothed in the shabbiest clothing of all. He was clothed in our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's while we were all dead in our transgressions, rebelling against this law of liberty, it was then that Christ delighted in showing us mercy by dying for us. Friends, Jesus is the man. He is the man who crosses the street. He is the man who has come down from heaven to bandage our wounds, to bring us in to his kingdom, to bring us into his family, where we get to call him our brother. And so, of course, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because the merciful and partial spirit is the one that has been gripped and changed by God's mercy. Playing favorites, this game, it's all about making judgments. Right? It requires sorting people out based on external things, putting them in this group or that group. But mercy suffocates judgment. It puts an end to playing favorites. When we extend this mercy to others that we have received, we are killing that partial spirit that dwells in us. It's a joyful, liberating thing, isn't it? To not be enslaved by the world's judgments. Friends, mercy is the sign that we are truly holding faith in Jesus, whose mercy and only his mercy that has set us free to fulfill the law of love. Let us pray. Lord God, we just now ask as we continue to worship you that you would make your mercy real in our hearts. Would you seal it by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may be conformed to the image of the Lord of glory. In his name we pray, amen.